You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Well, over the last uh, few times when I've been with you, both morning and evening, we've been looking at uh, this um, second coming discourse of Jesus. That's really what it is, in a sense, from Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Uh, where he speaks to his disciples and, of course, to us as well about his return. Let me just remind you of how that began, the beginning of Matthew chapter 24. Jesus had been with his disciples um, in the temple. They left the temple. They'd gone across uh, the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, and they were sitting there, and, and Jesus said to his disciples, this great building, this temple, that was actually still being constructed, King Herod was still working at it in the sense as a, to try and gain favor with the Jews at that time. The, the time's coming, he said, when it will be totally destroyed. There'll not be one stone here left on another. Now, the disciples heard that this temple is going to be destroyed, but they jumped to a wrong conclusion. They seemed to think that this temple would stand until the end of time, until Jesus came back again. So they asked him a double-barreled question, really. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? When will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? You see, they thought those two things would happen together. Now, we know, of course, that the temple was destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans, and Jesus still hasn't returned. Those two things aren't together. But the disciples misunderstood that. Jesus was here. Uh, Jesus then goes on to speak about both of those things in these two chapters, spending most time upon his return. But he does say some things that could only apply to the destruction of Jerusalem. He's doing what uh, Bible scholars call uh, a prophetic thing called prophetic foreshortening, where a prophet sometimes gave a message in which he spoke of more than one event at the same time. It's sometimes likened to going up a mountain. I went up the morns with a friend of mine uh, last uh, week. I think I'll perhaps make that my last time up the morns because uh, I struggled greatly, especially coming down. Uh, so I think we'll have to rethink that. But imagine going up a mountain. Uh, you see a mountain in front of you and think that's quite a climb and you struggle up to the top of it. And when you get to the top of it, you see another one that's hidden in behind it, and you have to go up that one as well. That sometimes uses an illustration of this prophetic foreshortening. The, 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 the prophets spoke not just of one mountain, but of two. Not just of one event, but of two in the same breath. And so Jesus here speaks of the judgment of God upon the Jews when Jerusalem would be destroyed, the temple would be destroyed. That's one event. But he also speaks in these chapters mainly about the second great event, his coming in judgment. We have looked at these two chapters uh, on a number of occasions in the last number of times that I've been with you. And it it's quite clearly points forward mainly to that. At that time is a phrase that's used, the day and the hour that, that Jesus was looking forward to, the, the parables when they the parable of the talents, for example, when the master returned, referring to the return of Christ, the parable of the five bride, five wise virgins and the five foolish virgins. You know, when at that time, when whenever the, the bridegroom came and the door was shut, all of these pointing forward 
to the return of Christ and to the judgment that will come at that time. Now, of course, this is not the only place in the Bible that judgment is referred to. There are many references, both in Old and New Testament. That's why I began with Psalm 98. Psalm 98 is a, a joyful psalm, saying to the Lord about his marvelous work of salvation. But at the end of it, did you notice? The psalmist calls upon the mountains and the hills and all creation to join to sing to the Lord because he's coming to judge the world. Wow. Sing, sing a song about judgment? Does that not sound right? Sing a song about judgment? You're going to court next week to have sentence passed because you've done something wrong. Are you going to sing a song about it? And many would rejoice at the thought of judgment. But the psalmist tells us to do that. Or listen to Psalm 50. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. Summons all the world, all its peoples. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. And, and then there's this very dramatic language, frightening language even. A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. This is often used in, 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 in the, uh, the idea of judgment, this sort of language. It's, a, it's going to be a, an awesome day. God summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my, to me my consecrated ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for God himself is judge. You can't mistake the Bible's teaching upon the day of judgment, which will happen when Jesus returns. We've looked at various aspects of his return. We've looked at the fact that we don't know the day and the hour. We know the fact that it'll be, it'll be visible, it'll be audible, there'll be a loud trumpet sound, the, uh, the sound of the archangel and so on, and Jesus will come upon the clouds of heaven with his, with his saints uh, and, and angels and so on. We've looked at those things. We've looked at the parables of the, the talents, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins and so on. But Jesus continues then at the end of this discourse here from verse 31. He's talking about the same time. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. When the Son of Man comes in his glory. I want to just ask three simple questions about judgment and to look at the answers from this passage. First of all, who will be the judge? Secondly, who will face the judgment? And thirdly, how will we be judged? I realize this is a very solemn subject, but it's here in the Scriptures for our instructions, and these are the words of Jesus himself, so we need to pay great attention to them. Who will be the judge? I wonder if you were asked that question, what would you answer? God will be the judge of all men? Yes, that's true in a sense. But more particularly, Jesus will be the judge. Jesus will be the judge. Do you remember how Paul put it when he was preaching to the people of Athens the end, towards the end of his second missionary journey? He was in Athens, and, and he said this to them. God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Who is that man? He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. God has appointed someone to judge the world, and it's the one he raised from the dead. It's Jesus. 
who will be the judge. It's Jesus who will be the judge. Jesus calls himself Son of Man here, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. That was quite a, a, a favorite title that Jesus used of himself, and it comes from the Old Testament, from particularly the book of Daniel. It's also found in the book of Ezekiel, but Daniel speaks of the Son of Man, and he speaks of him in terms of judgment. Listen to this, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has a vision, and he says, I looked, and thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Who would that be? That would be God himself, wouldn't it? Who else could you call the Ancient of Days? His clothing was white as snow, his hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire, and his wheels were all ablaze. Again, it's a, a, an awesome sight, this, isn't it? God in all his holiness and purity, seated upon his throne, rivers of fire were coming from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And then the court was seated, and the books were opened. That's a judgment scene, isn't it? The court was seated, and the books were opened. But Daniel goes on to say this, In my visions at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, Jesus himself coming in the clouds of heaven. And we see that phrase in other parts of the scriptures. He approached the Ancient of Days, the Son approaching the Father, as it were. What a mystery this is in many ways. And he was led into his presence. And he was given, Jesus, the Son of Man, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. He was given authority. He is the one who has given the authority to be the judge at the end of time. And he will come in his glory when the Son of Man comes in his glory. We read here. He came the first time to Bethlehem, virtually unnoticed, unrecognized, not worshipped by many, just a few. But he will come the second time in his glory. The Apostle Paul uh, right into the Thessalonians in Second Thessalonians chapter 1 describes that day like this. Listen, listen to his language. He's, he speaks of uh, Jesus being revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. You see the similar language that you have in Daniel, for example? And he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. He came the first time unknown, unrecognized, but he will come the second time in his glory to be the judge of all men. What an awesome day that will be. No wonder the Bible describes the trumpet sounding and the, the voice of the archangel shouting and fire and so on coming from the throne of God. Jesus sitting upon the throne of his heavenly glory. So the one who came to save the first time will come to judge the second time. That's the clear teaching of Jesus. Who will be the judge then? It will be Jesus. And all who mock him now, despise him, blaspheme his name, ignore him, will one day face him as judge. That brings me to the second point. Who will face the judgment? And the simple answer to that is everyone. 
The Apostle Paul made that perfectly clear, writing to the Romans or writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and each one of us will give an account unto God. And that's what we're told in this part of the gospel as well. And the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him. None accepted. No person accepted. Believers and unbelievers. Now we have learned, haven't we? And we know that it's sometimes difficult. It's very often difficult to distinguish believers and unbelievers in this life. Just by outward appearance. There are lots of unbelievers who live perfectly respectable and decent lives, and humanly speaking, but they don't know God. There are lots of believers who sadly fail and sin all too often. And it's like the story of the, the five wise and five foolish virgins. Do you remember when we looked at that the last time I was here? The, these virgins all professed to know the bride and the bridegroom. They all expected to be in at the, at the marriage feast. But of five of them, the bridegroom says, I don't know you. And the door was shut. You couldn't have distinguished them in life, really. You couldn't have distinguished them. They just looked the same. That's the way it is. I, I have enough bother, men and women, looking at my own heart than trying to discern what another person's heart is like. I can't do that. And that's why I, I'm very reluctant, very reluctant to, to say of, of people... When, when death comes, you know, you, you love to hope that, that this person is a Christian and has departed to be with Christ, which is far, far better. And I think we can have that hope as a strong hope in many cases, but very often we can't. Very often we can't. I got myself into bother at times because I, I didn't say at a funeral, so-and-so is in heaven. But I couldn't always say that, nor can you. We don't know. We don't know the state of the heart. We can't distinguish the righteous from the unrighteous in this life, believers and unbelievers. That's why Jesus told the parable of the wheat and the tares. Do you remember that one? A farmer sowed wheat, good seed in his field. An enemy came and sowed weeds among it. When it sprung up, the, the farmer's servant said, do you, do you want us to go and pull out pull up the weeds? And the farmer said, no, no, because you might pull up the wheat as well. Leave them both till the harvest, and then they will be separated. On the judgment day, God will separate those who are his and those who are not. Like wheat and tares, or here in this passage, like sheep and goats, the righteous and the unrighteous. God will separate them. Prophet Malachi, in Malachi chapter 3, looks forward to that day, and he says, of the believers, they will be mine in that day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And then he says this, and you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do, do not. Right throughout the Bible. Basically, the scriptures only look upon mankind as in one of two groups, the righteous, the wicked, the wheat 
the terms, the wise virgins, the foolish virgins, or here, the sheep and the goats. The Bible often warns us of the coming of this judgment, of course, doesn't it? And Jesus speaks of it here. All the Old Testament judgments are really, in a sense, warnings of what is to come. Uh, the book of Revelation, in, in Revelation uh, chapter 8, uh, speaks of seven warning trumpets. To, that, a reminder that right down through, to, down through history, uh, God has, in a sense, sounded the trumpet, warning us that there is a judgment day coming. When and the flood destroyed the world in ancient times. That's a warning. Peter tells us that in Second Peter chapter 3. He says, there are lots of scoffers who will mock you Christians and they'll say, where is this coming of Jesus that you talk about? Sure, the world has always gone on as it has done. Ah, no, Peter says. No, it hasn't. No, there was a flood when God destroyed this world. And he's going to do the same again, not this time by a flood, but by fire. Right down through Bible history and, and, and the history of mankind, there have been disasters and judgments that God has sent upon people or upon this world, and they all point us forward, remind us that one day there will be a final awesome day of judgment, and we need to be ready for it. And on that day, we will be separated like a shepherd separates his sheep from his goats. All will be judged on that day. How will we be judged? The last thing. Well, listen to what John, the Apostle John, tells us as he makes this perfectly clear in the book of Revelation and chapter 21. Here he's speaking about the day of judgment. He says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Like the picture in Daniel, do you remember? The Ancient of Days upon his throne and the Son of Man coming into his presence and being given authority to judge. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no, no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Everyone, in fact. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged. How were they judged? That's our last question. They were judged according to what they had done according to their works, as recorded in the books. Does that sound strange to you? I know in this church over the years you have often heard it said and said very clearly, we are not saved by our works. We are saved by grace. Like the Apostle Paul said in, second, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Works does not come in to our justification or our salvation. Not saved by works. Understand that. But we will be judged by our works. That's what John says in Revelation chapter 20. Because you see, as some of the reformers used to say, while we're saved by grace, grace alone, grace is never alone. It's always followed by works. If, if grace has changed our hearts, then our lives will be changed, and, and the works will show. And it's those works that we will be judged by. If we've been truly changed by the grace of God, our lives should be marked by holiness, by Christ-likeness. I love that word. Christ-likeness. By love for God, which is seen 
in our love for others. And that's what Jesus is emphasizing here in this particular passage. You might read this and think, is Jesus not teaching that we are saved by our works? You know, if we feed the hungry, if we visit the sick and visit those in prison and uh, give clothes to those who are naked, do these good things, will that not save us? No, he's not teaching that at all. But what he is teaching is this. If you have truly been saved by the grace of God and you truly love God, it will be seen in your love for others. That's what he's teaching. He's teaching what, what James taught in his epistle, that faith without works is dead. The works must follow. He's teaching what John said in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20. He says, there John says, you cannot say you love God whom you haven't seen if you don't love your neighbor whom you have seen. That's pretty plain, isn't it? If our lives, if our hearts have been changed by grace, it will be seen in our love for others, which is an evidence of our love for God. That's what Jesus is saying here. And he, he spells it out in, in, in more detail, doesn't he? You've got the picture here of him dividing people into the sheep on his right hand, those who know and love him, the goats on his left hand, those who don't know him. And then there's this little pattern. He speaks first to those on his right. It follows this pattern. He will say to them, they will answer, and he will reply. And he does the same with those on his left. Think of those on his right. The king will say to those on his right. What does he say to them? Come, you blessed of my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. It's a reminder here, of course, that salvation is God's eternal plan. He has chosen a people for himself even from before the world began. And he has prepared an inheritance for them. And Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and receive you unto myself. So he said to those on his right hand, come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Take your inheritance, that inheritance that has been prepared from before the foundation of the world. That's what he will say to those on his right hand. They will reply, they will reply, Sorry, he finishes that by saying, for I was hungry and you, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. That whole list of things. I was a stranger, I was naked, I was in prison, I was sick and so on. And you did this for me. Then they will reply, almost as if they're surprised. Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, or give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you and so on? They're, they're almost unaware of what they have done. But Jesus said, look, Jesus comes back and says to them, and as much as you did it to others, you did it to me. They, they had been changed by the grace of God. They had been saved by grace, but the works followed them. Their lives were marked by love for God that was seen in love for others. Same pattern with those on his left hand. To those in his left, he says, and listen to the solemnity of his words. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Strong language, isn't it? Yeah, he has used that language before, hasn't he? In this, these two chapters, throw that worthless servant out 
into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know you, he will say to the, the foolish virgins. Strong, strong language. But this is Jesus speaking for our benefit. I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. Thirsty and you didn't give me a drink and so on and so forth. And they would come back and reply to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and didn't give you something? When, when did this happen? And he will come back to them then and say, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. You see the principle? If your life has been changed, if your heart has been changed by the grace of God, if you've been truly saved, converted, it should show in works, works that prove not only your love for others, but your love for God. And you will be judged by those works. That's what Jesus is saying. Who will be the judge? Jesus himself, the one who came in humility to be the saviour of sinners, will come in glory to sit on his judgment seat judge. Who? All men. Everyone. And they'll be judged by their works. And there will only be two verdicts in that court. They will go away. Those on his left will go away to eternal punishment. But the righteous to eternal life. There are people who have taught down through the years what sometimes is known as annihilationism. And they say, oh yes, God is in his heaven and Jesus will come again and he will take his people home to be with him. All the others, well, their existence will just end. They'll be annihilated. That'll be it. Well, you can't read this and believe that. They will go away, the ones on his left, to eternal punishment. Punishment to the ages just literally how it reads in the Greek New Testament. And a similar phrase for the righteous. The righteous will go to life, to the ages, eternal life. If there's eternal life, there's also eternal punishment. Jesus says that. It's very hard to think of any more solemn teaching in the scriptures than this, isn't it? And yet it's here for us. And it's here for our benefit, men and women. As I said to you, I have enough bother looking at my own heart and examining my own life. But I want to ask you to do the same. Don't be looking back to a time when you made a profession, depending on that. Don't be looking at what you do in the church and depending on that. Look carefully at your life. Have you been truly converted by the grace of God? Has your life been changed? And does it show your holiness, Christ-likeness, and works like this? Love for your neighbor that shows that you love God, for you will be judged, and I will be judged. We'll all be judged by our works. Where will we stand on that great and awesome day? Let's pray together.